Hello, and welcome to the Kevetris Connected Care podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Knight, and I'm Content Marketing Manager at Kevetris. Our guest today is Dr. Maggie O'Hare. Dr. O'Hare is an internationally recognized scholar and associate dean for research and professor at the University of Arizona College of Veterinary Medicine. She is a leading researcher on human and animal interactions. Her research has included the effects of service dogs on post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans and the impact of facility dogs on hospital personnel. Dr. O'Hare is a collaborator with Covetris. Dr. O'Hare, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. We're glad you're here too. So to start, tell listeners how you became so passionate about the human-animal bond and began researching the topic. Well, I feel so lucky that this is my job, that I get to spend my days studying the human-animal bond and why we interact with animals, how we interact, and how that impacts our health and wellness as well as theirs. Um, It's really a dream come true. So how did it all begin? I think I've always been passionate about companion animals. And most people might think that the path that you should go is to be a veterinarian, which is an amazing path. Um, But I pursued my degree in psychology and found that you could start to study and understand why people interact with animals and what that looks like and what the impact might be. And it's been quite a fun and whiny journey from there. I think our listeners would be fascinated to hear more about your research. Could you share key findings on your work on PTSD, children with autism, and in hospital settings? I would love to share about my research in those areas. So we're lucky enough to look at several different areas of the human-animal bond and how interacting with animals impacts human lives. Three of those areas include military veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and their service dogs, facility dogs in hospitals, as well as animals for children with autism and their families. So I'll talk a little bit about each of these areas. The first is service dogs for veterans with PTSD. Now, we know that veterans are facing many difficulties, and one of those is that they often come back with post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a disorder that is diagnosed when there has been a traumatic event, and there are triggers that continue to create anxiety and other factors that interfere with activities of daily living and functioning. We know for these veterans that rates of suicide are high, depression, anxiety, and comorbid disorders are also very common. What we also know is that only about half of the individuals diagnosed with PTSD actually pursue treatment. So it's very hard to receive the benefits of treatment if you're not seeking it in the first place. There could be many reasons for this. It could be stigma around mental health services, access to care, but only half seek the treatment. Then of that 50%, Only about another half of those actually complete the services. Um, There's a lot of dropout from treatment. Our our best frontline treatment for PTSD right now is exposure therapy, which means that if you're familiar with this in the animal world, it's being exposed in small amounts to triggers of something that's traumatic or stressful until you can prolong it long enough to be comfortable with it. So for our veterans, if they know that on Wednesday at 9 a.m., they're going to show up and be exposed to triggers of their most traumatic event, well, they may not feel like showing up. Exactly. (laughs) And who blames them? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So hence the dropout rates that we're seeing. 
And then for those veterans that actually do continue and make it through that full course of treatment, we see that 60% still maintain a diagnosis of PTSD. So they still are facing those challenges and still looking for additional services. So because of all these hurdles at every time point, veterans are increasingly seeking out what we call complementary interventions. These are interventions that are designed to add to existing evidence-based care. And I think that's a really important distinction is that no one is recommending that someone get a dog and throw everything else away. The idea is that even the best frontline treatments have challenges and veterans are looking for more to add on to those. And that's where a service dog comes into play. Now, many of you may be familiar with service dogs already, but just in case not, a service dog is an animal that is trained to do a task or perform work to help with a disability. So that distinguishes them from our companion animals or therapy animals. They actually are trained to do a task to help mitigate a disability. For someone with PTSD, this can be a number of different things. They might be doing um, nightmare interruption. They might be um, helping a person to prevent a panic attack or when they are having anxiety, um, just nudging them or helping bring them back to the present. Um, they can do a number of different things that help in daily life. And it's what's unique about a service animal too, is they can be tailored to the individual. So if one person has a specific need, the dog can be trained to do tasks to help them that are different than the next person that comes in. Can you give an example? That's really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we have some veterans who nightmare interruption is really important because nightmares are important to them. And then we have others who that's not important. So they would, you would not want the dog be, to be waking them up at night. Or for example, some dogs could help turn on the lights if that's something that's helpful when a person enters the room, whereas for another, that may not be stressful. It, it kind of depends on their triggers and they really become attuned to one another. Beyond even the trained tasks, the dogs become quite adept at knowing what is the best form of interacting with this person. So, you know, also it could be that first one person, the dog will nudge them for the other person's deep pressure of the dog, like leaning up against them or getting in their lap. There can even just be those subtle differences between the training for each individual. So we know that veterans are seeking these dogs. Um, it's becoming more and more popular. If you look at the most common types of assistance dogs, um, we see guide dogs and then mobility assistance dogs, but actually the third most common type of assistance dog internationally right now is the psychiatric service dog, which is fascinating because if you look about a decade ago, that category of dogs didn't even exist, um, but it's really mm -hmm. grown in popularity as people start to see that the ways dogs can help in our society or have jobs in our society is really expanding their roles. And so now even for invisible disabilities, such as um, these wounds from war or PTSD, dogs can help with that as well. Well, that's what people are saying. Our job is to go in and study to find out who's that actually helping. And if so, how does it work? We've worked with a national service dog provider, Canines for Warriors, for several years now. And we've just grown to bring on another service dog provider, Canine Companions, to work with us as well. And what we've done over almost the past decade is several studies to look at um, whether and how service dogs work for veterans. So what we did in some of our initial studies is we looked at a group of people who had a service dog compared to a group that did not have a service dog. 
And what we found is that for the group with a service dog, they have significantly lower PTSD symptomology, significantly lower depression, anxiety. They're even able to do things like show up to work more often. So we found they have less absenteeism from work due to health if they have the service dog. Those findings are particularly helpful because if you look at an employer who's trying to make decisions around policy and, you know, should they allow these dogs at work, they need to know what their bottom line is. And if someone's more likely to show up, it really helps with that. And it helps with policies around public access and societal support for this to know that it's actually helping people engage with society and be a part of a productive part of their communities if they can be afforded this support. So that was kind of our first phase of research. The next thing that we did, you know, it's interesting. While I think it's really important to see these reductions in symptoms, sometimes people want to see, you know, the biology. They want something that feels more like a piece of hard science that you can connect with. So we also collected data on stress hormone physiology in the group that had a service dog compared to the group that did not have a service dog. And we did that through um, saliva collection. When we first started calling people and asking them to send spit in the mail, um, it was a unique experience. I think (laughs) through the pandemic, people have gotten a little more comfortable with that, but we were doing it before that when um, it wasn't the first phone call they wanted to receive, but they, they did um, get engaged. You know, the community of veterans we've worked with has been so engaged in the research. They haven't acted like this is a study that is getting in the way. They really see the value. They themselves have experienced barriers to access and discrimination that hasn't allowed them to be with their dog because there hasn't been this data. So they were on board and um, they collected saliva samples over three weekdays. And what we did is we looked at what's called the cortisol awakening response. So basically what that means is for healthy adults, when you wake up in the morning, you have this rise in your cortisol. That is your body recognizing the upcoming day. For those individuals who have PTSD, we often just see this flat line, this blunted, they don't have that peak. Their body is so constantly responding to stressors that it stops, the cortisol stops producing in the same way. So it's just flat. And what we were able to detect is that for veterans with a service dog, they show that rise in the morning again. Their body is showing a different physiological response to stress compared to the same type of veterans without a service dog. And this was amazing. Yeah. That must have felt that's been been so rewarding to actually see it happening, you know, in their bodies, the change. Right. Absolutely. It was really rewarding and exciting to see that it makes a difference on a measurable biological level. Um, So that was pretty powerful. And and helped us forge into the next phase of our research. Um, You know, we've been doing many different iterations of this to try and not only understand whether it works, but how it works. Um, And one of the things that we asked when it came to that was, you know, these organizations spend so much time preparing the dogs. They train them, they work with them, and then they pair them with the veteran, and then they say goodbye. And it was really unknown, you know, what is happening after that point? Are all these things, these tasks we train them to do being used? How often? Which ones are the most important? So we had um, we we were able to track that what tasks they're using over time. So things like um, calm comfort from anxiety or um, watch my backs. Watch my back is kind of if you're in a grocery store and you don't know if someone could come up behind you around the aisles. 
you might feel stressed and tense, but the dog can just nudge you if someone's coming up and then you know what's behind you and you feel safe. Other examples might be to create, just stand in front of them to create social space, make a friend. And what we found, so we would ask them, what task have you used in the past four hours? And half of the time, they had just used the calm comfort to anxiety task so much more than any of the other tasks. And what that told us is that that's really where the important kind of mechanism or the why and how is happening. It's this anxiety stress response. If previously, you know, our the veterans will tell us, I couldn't leave my house because I was too scared to go to any public place. But now if that dog can help with the anxiety, they can get out, engage with society in meaningful ways and feel able to participate in their lives. And that task seems to be a really important one to help them do that. And then also you've been working, your group has been working with children with autism as well. Yes. So um, one of the other areas that our group is working in is children with autism and their families and impact of animals in that community. So we've done a couple of different types of research there. Um, One of our research portfolios had to do with classroom animals. So these are animals that are in school classrooms for school children um, to see how that might impact children with autism and their peers. And so while it would be great to have a dog in every classroom, that's not necessarily feasible. While it might be wonderful to have a horse in every classroom, also not necessarily feasible. So in these studies, we actually worked with guinea pigs because they we could set up a nice housing arrangement for them that they could really live in the classroom and be there for the children at all times. Interestingly, we did um, partner with researchers who are using guinea pigs as breeding studies for horses because they can be a model of a horse. And what so after day two, though, of the guinea pig's life, they were not needed for that research anymore. So instead of being euthanized, they could come and be a part of a classroom program for children. Oh, so, yay. Yeah, it was a nice, Thank goodness. A nice next step for them that was still part of another research. So what we did is we worked really hard with these animals to socialize them from a young age. Guinea pigs really do need that human socialization. I would never take, you know, a two, three, four-year-old guinea pig and put them in these scenarios. You need to start them when they're young um, and get them used to it and comfortable. So what we did in that program is we developed these programs for the children. And what we found is that for children with autism, when they had an animal present in the classroom, they engaged more with their peers. They had more social interactions and they also showed less physiological indicators of stress. So we did stress biology studies with them as well. And and that's kind of what the science said. And then the anecdote, you know, the parents would give us kind of a description of how this went for their child. And we had a number of parents say of children with autism that my child will actually get in the car to go to school now. Whereas before that was not happening. My child says that he has friends to sit with at school now because we had these programs where they would interact with their peers and the animal. And so it was really meaningful to be able to see that, you know, it also doesn't necessarily have to be one species. There are many species that can create change for humans and especially for children. I mean, they were just, in love with these animals. And it was so special to get to be a part of and to develop that program. So we've done the guinea pigs with autism. We also are studying service dogs themselves for children with autism and their families. Um, And we're just starting to analyze that new data set, but we are seeing that for children and their families that having the service dog helps them create social connections in their communities, 
helps reduce um, the stigma that sometimes they feel is associated with their child or family when they're in public. Having the dog there reduces that and creates more positive engagement. And then it also helps internally in the family at home. They are able to kind of build resilience and foster connection in their own family. So it's not just about the one person, the one child. It really helps to bridge social connections in the home and in the community. That's amazing. And then I also understand that you are starting or you are looking at service animals in hospital settings, working with hospital personnel. And I'm so fascinated by this, frankly, because we know in veterinary medicine how stressful it can be and how we have people you know experiencing compassion fatigue and you know mental health issues anxiety and stress and so i'm super curious about this research we are indeed also working in hospitals so we primarily are working in pediatric hospitals and units and we're interested in looking at facility dogs So a facility dog is a dog that goes to work every day and has a job in the hospital to go with the hospital personnel that they are paired with. Um, That's different to a therapy dog. Therapy dog is a volunteer who brings their dog for a few hours here and there. A facility dog has a badge and comes to work. Um, And most of the research on these facility dogs so far has looked at how does this help the patients? the children and their families. But we were interested in the people who work in the hospital, especially in these um, children's hospitals. I mean, these are individuals who are caring for families, giving really difficult news in many cases, seeing children in pain and struggling. I mean, the things that they're facing, I have chills just thinking about day in and day out, the toll that that can take. And so we wanted to know how could an animal help that individual as well? So what we did is we looked at two groups. So it was people who work in the same type of unit, had been in the same role for the same amount of time in their career. But in one case, there's a dog present on the unit or facility dog. In the other case, there's not. So are there differences between those two settings for the people who work in the hospital? And the way that we did that is we did traditional surveys, but we also had a smartphone app that would ping them throughout their day to see how they're feeling, who they're with, what their dog's doing. Are they feeling burnt out? Are they feeling like they want to quit? Are they feeling satisfied? And so what we were able to see in their daily lives is that those people who had a facility dog were not only doing better emotionally, but they felt they had more accomplishments at work. They were feeling greater satisfaction with their role. And ultimately, they had less job turnover. They were less likely to quit if they could have the dog. And to me, that's the ultimate kind of indicator of whether or not your um, welfare is okay, is whether you can stay in the role or quit is is a big outcome. And especially for hospitals, I mean, of all places, they're making their decisions based on data. And this is the type of data that they need if they're going to continue these programs for patients and for staff. Switching gears, how can your research, I mean, this wide body of fascinating research that you've done on the human-animal bond, better inform veterinarians as they provide care for animals and then work in partnership with the humans who love those animals and then, you know, veterinary staff and whatnot, like what role do you see for the veterinarian? I think the role of the veterinarian is so critical in these human animal bond relationships that we've talked about in each area today. I mean, we have seen in our science how strong the bond is, which means to me that the veterinarian is playing a a critical role, not only in the health and well-being of the animal, but also of the human. 
because the animal is so important to that human's outcomes. So I think one of the critical roles of veterinarians is to understand, to know the breadth of their impact, to really listen to the human and watch the animal and figure out ways that they can maximize that bond and help both parties in ways that are feasible. And if nothing else, I think veterinarians should really give themselves a pat on the back because their role has such strong and broad impacts beyond just that one animal and that one interaction. But if you think about any of the animals in in the studies that we've talked about, they're impacting a number of other humans, whether it's the direct person that they work with, their family members, their community, the patients that they see. I think that we've underestimated how important the role of veterinarians are to our community and to our health and wellness. And so if nothing else, I think they are owed a debt of gratitude and should feel really proud of the impact that they can have. Yeah, 1000% could not agree more. So final question, this is a little bit of a longer one, bear with me. So with cost rising, there are a lot of conversations these days about providing the best care for pets and animals while also bearing in mind, you know, if a client's financial situation, their financial conditions, the stress of worrying how they might pay for an unexpected cost. I imagine that stress may be exponential for families with a service animal that they, you know, they have additional costs to consider. How can veterinarians help ensure that service animals are receiving, you know, the care they deserve so much throughout their lifetime of service? I'm glad that you asked that question because it is something certainly to be thinking about. I guess some context to give is that, you know, the service animals that we work with, the the organizations are nonprofit and they provide those dogs free of cost to the individuals who apply for their dogs. So I think that's, it's nice to know that we're working with groups that provide that at a starting point. I will say that the demand exceeds the supply by far. And part of the reason for that is that these organizations are trying to collect more evidence about their efficacy so that they can show that it works and get more support. And some of the organizations have been able to provide up to lifetime support for medical care for these animals, but that's more on the rare side. And that's something we'd like to see grow. I think another area where we're hoping our science will direct things is that if we have data to show how powerful and helpful this is, it could be covered by insurance. It could be covered by different, you know, governmental funding policies that help with disability and support. So I think the direction that I hope we move towards is seeing how valuable these animals are and providing additional supports rather than making it the onus of the individual with a disability to cover those costs. You know, that's my dream. And that's part of why I do what I do. I also recognize that we're not there yet and that it is still something that veterinarians are facing in their practices. So the other thing I'm heartened to see is something that Covetris is actually working on, which is the service care plans for service canines. And to me, that is so exciting and incredible to see this program being developed to support these veterinary costs because they do add up and these are individuals who may or may not have access to those resources. And so that type of program to me is incredible and hopefully we'll begin to bridge the gap between where we are now and where I would like to see us with evidence that supports better funding, insurance, and access policies so that it's less of an issue. Now, in the meantime, when we can't be in the perfect world in the future, and I know that we can't fund excellence <laughs> that program, but I think then it's about meeting a client where they are and finding solutions that are, you know, 
using a spectrum of care model and trying to, um, you know, support people where they are for that bond so that they will come back and so that they will get as much help as they can. But honestly, this is a population that seems to desperately love their animals and want to do whatever they can. And, and I hope we'll be really motivated to partner with veterinarians to find creative solutions. But I just wanted to acknowledge Nick Brokoff and his team at Covetris for doing those care plans because um, it's an incredible service and so important. Yeah, Nick is fantastic, and that program is just so, so exciting. And Dr. O'Hara, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming on our podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me and for listening and enjoying and talking with me.